Henry. And I'm Kyle Thompson. And you're listening to General Intellect Unit. And uh, this time we are reading Tree Stories by Stefano Mancuso, which was released uh, like last month, like April 2023, I think. Um, this... And it's, it's not actually even available worldwide yet. It's like publication forthcoming in like Canada and stuff. That's quite fun. Quite fun. Um, yeah, we've got a, we've got an advanced copy here. <laughs> um, <laughs> yeah, this is a fun little book. This is this is quite a bit lighter than anything we've been tackling recently. So I think it's going to be a short episode. But it is. Um, it was it was a wheeze to read this. You know, um, quite amusing. Yeah, hundred percent. Like it is. Um, it kind of reminds me of like. Orwell's essays, very sort of like familiar conversational. Um, uh, there's there's quite a lot of like comedy and irony, um, uh, lots of sort of editorializing in all of the like first person editorializing uh, about everything. Um, yeah, it's it's a very 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 light read. Yeah. It's um, I'd still I'd, I'd absolutely recommend it as a read. Um, uh, even like we're we're going to talk about it, we're going to summarize it, but um, it is it is absolutely worth the read because it is it is cute and fun. Um, the author's uh, shtick is that he's a he calls himself a plant neurobiologist. Um, specifically, like he, he's in the field of botany. Um, he's really into like you know plant intelligence and communication among plants and stuff like this. Uh, there's there's an interesting article in the guardian that was a kind of interview with him that i will link in the show notes um but a lot of the content of that interview isn't isn't really in the book like the the, the plant intelligence stuff doesn't really show up um he, he has some fascinating points in the uh interview about like the fact that you can anesthetize plants in the same way you can do animals like suggest they're you know they're conscious or they're they're kind of like their nervous systems are their nervous systems are more diffuse than ours like it, it animals tend to specialize their functions into organs plants don't like pl plants diffuse their functions through their bodies but there's a lot there and like they communicate with each other um what was the recent thing where it's like plants when cut emit a high-pitched scream that we can't hear but like dogs can you know <laughs> what? did you see that shit <laughs> No. No, they they make sound. What the hell? Yeah, let's let's. That's so wild. I could have I could have sworn you know you knew this, but like let's quickly Google this because it's fucking crazy. No, I did not know this. I did not know this. Holy shit. Anyway, if you Google for it, there's a shitload of stuff there. Um, I I'm not gonna I'm not gonna track down an hard. Uh, oh no, okay, bioarchive.org. Uh, plants emit informative airborne sounds under stress. Um. Uh, ultrasonic screams when they're when they're either uh, threatened or attacked and so they can they, they can communicate with each other like chemically but like they can just fucking talk as well which is kind of insane <laughs> you know that's wild yeah it's it's insane i feel like you need i feel like you need to cut in that like Werner herzog uh documentary voiceover um uh where he's talking about um the jungle Taking a close look at, at what's around us, there, there is some sort of a harmony. It is the harmony of overwhelming and collective murder. And we have to become humble in front of this overwhelming misery and overwhelming fornication. 
overwhelming growth and overwhelming lack of order. Even the, the stars up here in the, in the sky look like a mess. There is no harmony in the universe. We have to get acquainted to this idea that there is no real harmony as we have conceived it. But when I say this, I say this all full of admiration for the Changi. It is not that I hate it, I love it. I love it very much, but I love it against my better judgment. <laughs> <laughs> That's fucking nuts. But, um, he was more right than he ever knew. Oh my god. Yeah. And Holy mean, shit. Yeah, they fucking they communicate, right? And like the, the the crazy thing is like they're they're ultrasonic apparently in the range that like dogs could hear. So, um, but we don't. So, but that that gets to a lot of the the content of this book, right? That like, um, we you know we in the colloquial sense and just and we in like the practice of science seem to be really reluctant to take lessons from the plant world. And even when the evidence is presented, seem really reluctant to take it seriously or to like take take plants for what they are, right? Um, and that's it's kind of one of the big themes here that like we don't we just don't take plants seriously, and that's something that the author is trying to correct. Yeah, so it, it, it's the book it, itself has quite uh, scarce information on plant intelligence. Um, uh, it is it is actually a lot more about uh, sort of how prolific uh, plants and especially trees are um, and how we like continuously almost willfully ignore things about them despite them being like everywhere around us like just this this screening out, mental screening out that we do of anything to do with plants and uh, uh, this this extreme cognitive bias towards an emphasis on um, the human, the animal, and sort of the, uh, maybe you could say, like the orderly, inert physical world. Um, yeah, exactly right. Um, and it's... It, 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 like a lot of the stories in the in the tree stories book are kind of about the way that the, like the way the plants intersect with like science and the practice of science in various ways and like how even there it's like it's still not really kind of admitted like you, you would think that in our scientific investigations we'd be better at this kind of thing but it's still an uphill struggle to get any kind of evidence from the plant world to be taken seriously yeah, it's it's not a matter of uh, scientific capacity to uh, become aware of these facts. It's a matter of sort of like willful ignorance um, is, is really the thesis that uh, we get here. Yeah, and, and the author points out uh, that like the animal world makes up a very small like minority of life on earth like and to, to try to tell a story about life but just forgetting about 80 something percent of life wasn't even like more than that it was like plant matter it was like we it wasn't like the animals like sub five percent or something like that something fucking crazy like that yeah yeah it was it was really really uh a low compared to the, the amount of uh uh plants in the world yeah. 
And try, trying to tell a story about life in general without taking life in general into account is is pretty weird. Um, and like, I guess it kind of feeds back onto some of the content we've covered in the show. Like, I mean, you know, Beer's viable system model and stuff is is a quite an animal kind of uh, model. I mean, it, it's modeled on the human body or whatever, but like, um, it, it, it leaves you wondering then, like, it kind of like, does it generalize well to all life forms? Um, would, if you tried to do like a plant-based VSM, would it be a little different? Right. Yeah. It, I mean, it's, it seems like, um, yeah, I mean, there, there's the, the question of, of, of plants, of ecosystems, uh, that, that is sort of brought up in brain of the firm, uh, and, and beer just sort of says, well, it's not really forward thinking enough. Um, it's not really, uh, how could I say it? Like, it doesn't really have like the system four functions that animals have, that humans have especially. And that is something that made him decide not to, uh, focus on an ecosystem as an example. Um, but also, like, there are a number of things we know now about plants that Beer had no idea about at all, right? Like, we, we know a lot more about plant intelligence now, probably not very much, but a lot more than we used to. Um, in, the, in the last, say, 20 years, we've, we've come to learn a lot more. Um, so it might require some reassessment. And then you have, like, really weird stuff like the... Uh, those uh those those soaps that we were looking at in the GIU Discord the other day where it's like this is neither a colony nor is it an organism. <laughs> this is weird shit. Uh it is it is neither it yeah, it is neither a body with organs, nor is it a body without organs. It is in fact some other thing that is totally liminal and screws up the entire <laughs> framework. Uh that's um that's the book that's the book that Deleuze never got to write, you know, the secret third thing. <laughs> um. Yeah, 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 yeah. Well, and, and then, like, I feel like even the stuff that we've learned about trees, um, the sorts of things that are mentioned in terms of tree intelligence, but also, like, tree communication, uh, like this thing in, I think it's in, was it in chapter three where they have the 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 trunk the the stump that is still alive is kept alive by the trees surrounding it yeah, yeah like that kind of thing i think really sort of even undermines the concepts of like the arborescent that you get in Deleuze. because like trees trees don't actually function the way that the that Deleuze thought they did at that time, or that people people generally thought they did. They're they're more rhizomatic than he gave them credit for. They're more rhizomatic than than he ever appreciated or anyone else did at that time. Yeah. So it, it's like, oh, like even trees are not arborescent in the way that like traditional uh, biology thought about them. Um, yeah. So it is like. It's obviously not a slight against the list because you had no idea about this stuff. No one did uh, in any like you know established scientific context. Um, but uh, as far as like our sort of future theorizations, we do need to take these things into account, and that's kind of the point that is being made in this book here, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. It's um, things. I guess it, it lines up with the. Um, 
I, I, it, 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 there's a funny kind of rhyming to, to the way that all turned out that like because Deleuze is always kind of like you know we should we should try to think things in this more diffuse kind of way and think think kind of in a mixed mode of rhizomatic and arborescent um kind of kind of thinking but then, then it just turns out the trees are like that anyway <laughs> it's very fucking yeah their trees are already that thing yeah exactly yeah. yeah um very strange and like i mean i, I think it, one of the things that's never really stated but is, is implied strongly is that like we would we would benefit a lot from just paying a lot more attention to trees and learning from them uh, and taking taking fewer lessons from animals maybe and just like um spending more of our time looking at trees yeah i mean it's like that thing where you know we spend so much time like thinking like oh what if we encountered aliens it's like we do it like every every day of our lives. I walk past one; it's outside my fucking house. I can see it through the window, you know. Yeah, it's like you know, undersea creatures are basically aliens to us. But like, you know, even trees, it seems like, are basically aliens in the sense that we had no idea how they operated. And like we didn't even we couldn't even perceive them screaming all the time. <laughs> there's there's this massive gap between our like perception of our own kind of knowledge of the world and and the kind of reality of how much we actually know. Like, and that's and that's what that's what even even with it's, you would you would kind of assume that trees were pretty well understood by now, but it's just not the case, right? Like, and if we're if if our knowledge is that flimsy on something that should be so familiar, then like, it makes the world of of reason and science seem a lot fucking smaller than it initially does. Yeah, I mean, it's like we know a lot about how to make trees into means of production, and that is mostly what we know about trees. <laughs> it's kind of kind of the impression of of what I have learned from this book. Absolutely. <laughs> Yeah. Um, yeah, let's let's maybe get started. The, the, the prologue had me from the fucking first couple of words because, like, um, I'm I'm just gonna read out this first first two paragraphs because this had me hooked immediately. Um, uh, so, quoting from the prologue here. After decades of keeping community with plants, I seem to perceive their presence not only in every place on our planet but also in the stories of each and every one of us. At first, I figured that a heightened perception of the vegetable world was the normal consequence of my sensitivity to these silent beings. And that, as happens to anyone who develops a strong taste for something, I had started to notice the object of my interest wherever I went. Anyone who has fallen in love knows what I am talking about. That strange sensation that everything in the universe, no matter how distant or marginal, appears to be related in some way to the object of our affection. Every event, every song, the weather conditions, the stones in the sidewalk you're walking on, Everything has a precise echo in your own little love story. Now, I'm an absolute sap, and this had me going right from the fucking beginning. I, I knew I would love this book. Yeah, but I mean, I, I also like, I, I also think it's, it's a great introduction in the sense that, like, you know, he's really introducing somebody who is very perceptive about the world and about people and the way we think, right? Like, because this is, you know, a real phenomenon. It, it, uh, absolutely. Um, and so uh, it, 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 it hooks you in emotionally. Um, it's quite romantic. Uh, but also it is like very perceptive. The point being that 
No, it's it's not simply the fact that you know he uh, loves plants. It's it's actually the plants are everywhere. <laughs> right, right. It's it's not just a fascination. It's not just a crush. Yeah, yeah. It's is uh, yeah. It's like uh, um. Okay, I have thought about it, and I think I can assert with a certain degree of assurance that the answer is no. Uh, I am reasonably sure of it, that I live with plants, study them, and that they are undoubtedly the center of my interests is not related to their appearance at the start of every story. It is simply a consequence of their enormous number and of their being the source of life on this planet. This is an indisputable fact. How could it be otherwise? We animals are only 0.3% of our planet's biomass, while plants are 85%. It is obvious that every story that takes place on our planet has, in one way or another, a leading role for plants. So, you know, it's just, like, beyond the obsession, uh, it's pretty easy to run into them because they're everywhere. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, it's... um... It, it's fabulous. And, uh, like, um, let's see. So chapter one, Planting Liberty, is um, maybe some some of the funniest stuff I've read in a while. Um, he just, he kind of goes over this really amusing kind of anecdote of, like, um, you know, he'd, he'd attend these, um, like, book-selling kind of secondhand book exchange sort of events. And um, he has this, like, arch nemesis who's, like, a lot better at, like, getting to the good books early and, like, will, will, like, vault over tables like a panther to, like, seize his prey and shit like that. It's just, it's all very amusing. Yeah, like, very much, like, plays up the rivalry, plays up the, uh, the intensity of emotion about, like, you know, the competition for getting the best uh, secondhand books uh, of... of of, of whatever obscure interests that these nerds happen to have. Right. <laughs> like it's, 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 you know, it's very like, it's very charming in the sense that the stakes are so low, but the antagonism is so high. And the fact that it's the fact that it's like two like, uh, fairly old men, uh, scrap, scrapping it out over these books, um, is, 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 is adds to the hilarity uh, so yeah, it's 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 a very good read this uh, first chapter here. And the um, <clears throat> the the author's interest is botany, but then this his antagonist, uh, Professor Henri Girard, his his interest is botany, but also like um, revolutionary French history. Um, and at some at some point along the way, um, our author manages to snag a a book that like, kind of initially doesn't look like much, but when you open it up, it turns out to be a book about the Liberty Trees in in the revolution um and you know uh, the the antagonist is is very disappointed by this but they, they kind of become friends over it and actually collaborate on you know analyzing the book and um seeing what it's all about and like it kind of it unveils this really fascinating kind of bit of history that in the early years of the french revolution um it was decided that they were going to plant a bunch of trees or not plant trees they were going to transplant trees from the forest into the town squares to like be the emblems of the revolution yes like they're you know the it's uh 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 this document was written uh sorry written by uh abbe glegoire uh who some of you listened to revolutions might remember um 
but uh, the the criteria that he gives is that uh, the perfect tree must one be strong enough to withstand the coldest climate. Otherwise, a severe winter would be enough to eliminate it from the soil of the Republic. Two, be selected from among the tallest trees, ranging from 80 to 130 feet tall, because the strength and magnificence of a tree inspires a sense of respect that is naturally tied to the object of which it is the symbol. Number three, have a circumference that occupies an ample extension of terrain. Number four, have an extension of shade large enough to provide citizens shelter from the rain and heat under its hospitable branches. Number five, be long-lived, and if it cannot be eternal, at least be chosen from plants whose life can go on for centuries. And number six, be able, finally, to grow in solitude in all the regions of the Republic. When I read this, I immediately thought of Elden Ring with the Erd Tree and the minor Erd Trees and shit like that. Like, oh, a hundred percent, a hundred percent. Yes, and and therefore, of course, the the Liberty Tree must be an oak, right? It is it is the most majestic of of European trees, and yeah, and, uh, it's it's the only tree that's going to cut it with those criteria, right? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, and then there's all this sort of talk about like, could people have actually like done these transplants? They're so they're so complicated and difficult, even in more modern times. Like, it's sort of like they compare it to like building the pyramids, like like you know, it's like these these primitive people of the 18th century. Like, how how could they have done this? Is it, like, is it even conceivable? Was this all? It was this all a fancy? Was it ever actually accomplished? Um, uh, you know, all of these questions come up doing this historical research because this uh, this um, particular document by the Abbe Gregoire is like not very well known, um, and it's kind of ignored, like most things about trees. Yeah, right. It's um, and that, that's the thing, right? Because like the the document contains a uh, an illustration that they that they what grabs their eye is that it seems to be it's a map of of france but like it it has these like very thin lines that look like a root network and where the where the roots converge those are locations that the liberty trees were um but then they can go look up in an archive the actual like the bigger version of this illustration that this this one is a reproduction of and it's it's like it's it's even it's less than half of the actual illustration because it is it is a root network but then the other half of it that's missing is is like an herd tree it's this huge fucking oak tree that's like spread that like if, of which those are the roots um yes and it and it it, it spans from uh france to america right um, the the root network, so to speak, of these uh, these like sister trees connecting sister cities and sister republics. And so the the document like it puts forward like a kind of like an, an absolute majesty to this and like a kind of centrality of of the, this project to the project of the revolution. And yet it's basically forgotten. Um, not many of the liberty trees survived. Um, there's, I, I, I don't even know if there are any still standing today. Uh, there are, there are. Uh, they, they, uh, it's like the ones in like the most obscure, remote places are the ones that have survived. Uh, because basically, every time the the reactionaries took power, they would cut them all down as a. Uh, as a, as you know, well, they're the symbol of the revolution of the republic. Well, we need to destroy them in order to reestablish uh, the kingdom, right? Um, yeah. So it, it it they're they're like 
sort of the the unfortunate uh like how, how what would you say like the they're like the unfortunate victims caught in the middle of the the revolutionary struggle between the the forces of revolution of re, and the forces of reaction um and and this ends up like uh leading to most of them being destroyed despite the fact that they are in fact very large and and very healthy and and so on and so on it doesn't really matter because uh uh, they get they get wrecked. The, the and then uh, on top of that, the whole network is forgotten. Um, so it's like people will just sort of like be like, "Oh, where did this tree come from anyway?" And then, "Oh, there's this Liberty Tree thing, huh? Huh?" And this is an exact bookend with the final chapter of the book that describes these moon trees, um, <laughs> where <laughs> these 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 seeds were brought. Um, on one of the Apollo missions to the moon and then brought back to earth and planted um, uh, around America. And in, and in, I guess they sent them to some other countries as like a diplomatic thing too. Yeah, they did. And then, and then you know, like you had like president Gerald Ford being like, this is a symbol of like our greatest accomplishments as a Republic, as Americans, blah, blah, blah. And then like everybody just completely forgot about them. <laughs> right. And and the only reason it ever comes up again is that like some, there's like, um, I don't know, there's one of these things planted outside a school in Idaho and one of the fucking secretaries calls up NASA and is like, what the fuck is a moon tree? Yeah. Why is there a plaque describing this as a moon tree? <laughs> and, and even NASA are like, we don't know. Like what the fuck? And the, <laughs> they have to like go and do all this archival research to figure out like what happened with these trees that they themselves planted. They sent to the fucking moon, you know? And like, if there was, if there was like a cash that went to the moon, you better, you better believe that would be a fucking celebrity. Um, but, but, but like plants that went there and came back and got planted everywhere as again, as it like the, 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 these like, you know, nation state projects are pl plenty capable of like borrowing trees as symbology when it's kind of useful, but then get pretty quickly forgotten. Yeah. Which is, which is odd. Um, and so the, yeah, I mean the, the, the book they have here in front of them is like one of these very few artifacts that like makes a point of just how kind of majestic the shit was and like how, I mean, it, it, you know, these are revolutionary times, like, why were they spending their time talking about fucking planting trees and shit? Well, it must have been important, right? Like it must it must have been of of some importance to take up that much kind of time and energy. And as they say, like moving a big oak from the forest into the town square is not a small undertaking. Yeah, yeah, and, and the even funnier thing is like um, after the reactionaries cut the the liberty trees down. Um, in eighteen forty eight, the revolutionaries plant a bunch more. Like they, they go back and try it again and then they get cut down again <laughs> when Louis Napoleon takes over. Yeah, ridiculous. Uh. So so it's, it, it's like very like, oh, like it, it was important enough not only to do it once, but to try it twice. Um, yeah. Um, a fun little anecdote. Um, chapter two is uh, Planting Cities in which the, uh, the author makes a you know, an easy argument in in, in, in my books, because I'm, I'm very on board for this, um, an argument for uh, greening cities by quite a bit, um, like substantial, substantial um, 
vegetable incursion into cities. Um, he's not wrong, uh, largely. Um, the one the one bit I kind of take some issue with is like, um, you know, he begins by saying like, I mean, we uh, kind of naturally sort of seem to exclude nature from our domiciles. You know, we kind of draw even the small hot or whatever draws a distinction between inside and outside. We try to keep the outside on the out and try to, you know, make a separation. Um, I don't know. I, I quite like being separated from nature when I'm in my home. That's quite nice. Because, um, um, I mean, we were talking about this in the green room, but like, uh, luckily in this house, we don't have much of a problem with pests. But like, sometimes you get some really wacky shit crawling under the doors. Um, you all need to go and look up uh, a coach horse beetle, because they're pretty fucking weird. They're like big... Fairly big by British standards, black beetles that kind of look like scorpions. Like they're long and their tail can arch up almost like a scorpion's tail. Um, they make a horrible racket. If you scare them, they'll they'll make a stink and stuff. But like, you know, the, the problem with them is like in, in autumn, when the leaves are on the ground, they, they, they like to nest under piles of leaves and then they'll just kind of come in, come inside the house as well. And it's like, I, I would really rather they not, you know what I mean? <laughs> I, I like nature to be on the outside because like it's bad enough when my daughter finds like a spider in her bed and she's freaked out by that but it would be even worse if it was a fucking giant centipede or a coach horse beetle or like I don't know there's a fucking tree growing through the window or something you know it's like I, I kind of do like the separation um yeah 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 no and like I I feel like in my experience the closer you get to living out in nature the more intense the desire to have that separation becomes. It's not the op it's, it's not the opposite. It's not like you get in touch with nature and then you feel like, oh yeah, whatever. Just like, you know, I'll just like go sleep in this pile of leaves with all these beetles crawling all over me. It's chill. Uh, it, it like, it's not like that. You feel like, you know, oh yeah, I like being outside, but I also like to have my own space. Um, uh, like, and, 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 you know, the, the intensity increases because the amount of effort required to maintain that separation becomes more and more difficult. Right. So it's like, you know, you have to basically treat like the, the sort of like a uh, cloak room or like the boot room of your house is like an airlock and like nothing from outside comes into that room that doesn't belong there and you never leave both doors open. If you do, you're asking for ants to get in, flies to get in, mosquitoes to get in, whatever it is. Like, there'll be everything in there in no time and, and dirt everywhere. And, and the thing is, like, you know, yeah, like, even my, my mom used to live in a, a, a log cabin. And, and there would just be like flies that would just nest in the walls because they're, they, they, they have holes in them because they're made out of trees. Right. Um, and, 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 and so it would just be like in the late summer, you would just have continuous swarms of <laughs> flies that would hatch every day. Oh my God. And just, and just, and just you know, fill up your house. They just keep respawning. And you had to like go around with like a vacuum cleaner, like a shop vac and just like suck them off the walls because there were so many oh, of them. Fucking sucks. Oh my God. <laughs> and, and, and like, it was awful. Uh, it's fucking terrible. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah. And, 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 you know, I just had like an infestation of moths in my house. They were eating my clothes. They were eating my food. They were spoiling food. Like, 
uh, it was like a, a month long battle to try to get rid of them. And I don't even know if they're gone or not. Cause I'm out of the country right now. Um, and, and, and so like, I very strongly feel the importance of <laughs> this divide, uh, that, that it, it is, it is actually something that we kind of, I wouldn't say we can't live without it, but like, how could we be happy without having something like that? I, I suddenly don't feel quite so bad about the little roly polies that come under the door sometimes in this house, you know, that sounds fucking terrible. No, I mean, there, there's like, the, the weird thing is like, to a certain degree, the reason why the moth infestation in my apartment is so bad is because there's no predators for the moths because there's no other life forms other than us that live in there and like microorganisms. Right. So it, like it, they can just the population could just explode. They could just have a field day because the, the, the ecosystem on the inside is so simple that it's like just completely vulnerable to infestation. Um, it's totally deprived of natural variety. Yeah. Like we don't have any spiders to eat them. Uh, we don't have any birds. We don't have anything like that. But I, it's, it's, it's also not the case that you could just be like, well, then obviously you just need to like fill up your house with like a menagerie of different insects. <laughs> because I don't think that's really what we're aiming for either. No. And, then, and so I, I think while the author is very on the right track with like pl planting a lot more vegetation in cities, like he's, he's, not, he's not even just talking about planting trees. It's like we should be like carpeting the sides of buildings in, in, in plants and just every fucking surface should be covered in moss. And that's kind of it. It's like if that's if that's the case and that that helps a lot with climate change and all that, all that kind of good stuff, I can't help but wonder how much worse the pest situation is going to be around here. That's that's just the thing that I can't help but wonder about. And is it going to be like, so, you know, if you work in an office building, you know, it's pretty bad if it gets if it gets flies or like, as you said, moths or whatever. But then it'll be a lot worse if the moths and the wasp are, wasps are duking it out to see who dominates, you know, right in front of your desk, you know, this kind of thing. Yeah, yeah. And I mean, it's like, certainly with modern building techniques, we can maintain this barrier fairly effectively right in terms of having like you know like uh double glazed windows and this kind of stuff right like you can air gap the outside and the inside but you do wonder um i think that yeah like basically what he says is um uh I believe that the that cultural heritage, including in a certain sense, our adaptive memory regarding how our home must be constituted, plays a prevailing role. Much of our ancestral memory concerns the necessity to defend ourselves. From the moment that the first human felt the urge to build a hut in order to settle in some place, the inevitable consequence of this decision was to trace out a separation between his refuge and the nature surrounding it. Defense against predators, whether animals or humans, has always been an essential element in the construction of our settlements. The separation between outside the city, where nature reigns supreme, and inside, where on the contrary nature is completely excluded, is an ancestral remnant of those distant times. And I do agree with that. Like, I've also lived in, like, central Prague, 
which is one of these cities that he talks about where there's like no plants at all, except for like ornamental plants on, you know, the facades of buildings and this kind of stuff. Right. Like, and it would, it did kind of like beyond the heat Island effect, which is a real problem or the air quality or whatever, like, it did kind of have like a weird psychological effect on me to live in a world without plants. It was disturbing. It was upsetting. Um, I definitely agree that like there is a sort of dialectical third step here where you could have a reconciliation. Uh, it's just, yeah, again, like don't think it's going to be simple. Like just because you have like green roofs and you have like, um, uh, plants growing on the sides of buildings everywhere. Don't think that that's not going to create their own issues because it will. But of course the situation we're living in now is completely untenable and we must change, right? Like we have to change this. It, it, it Like our cities are going to become even more unlivable than they already are. Um, yeah. There is one other thing uh, that I thought was kind of fascinating point that was raised in this chapter that, um, you know, he's talking about like urbanization and how it's speeding up. Like um, we we're, we seem to be concentrating more and more in cities and that this, this acceleration toward urbanization is very contrary to the the way our activities have been in the past, right? Like we, we've tended to expand the territory we occupy. We, t we tended to explore and go and find new places to live and all that kind of shit. But that really reached its peak with the landings on the moon, right? And then we turned back and then contracted into smaller and smaller spaces, um, which I don't know, like in, in, in a sense for, you know, the, the whole... I mean, it doesn't it doesn't translate exactly, but like the, the half Earth socialism stuff, it's like, well, you know, shrinking into tighter and tighter spaces would be a good thing if it also, if we also didn't weren't like you know smashing down everything else to make agricultural land to feed the you know feed everyone's cities. But you know, it's it's a very interesting reversal of the dynamic. And yeah, it, like uh, as as he mentions here, he says like seventy seven percent of this enormous area of agricultural land we have subtracted from forests and natural ecosystems is used today to raise cattle and only 23% is used for the production of vegetable food. It's like, that is astounding. Um, I mean, it, it's a thing that of course, like any like vegan who's done some research will probably know, but like, it is really incredible that like as a species we've all concentrated in these cities, like a vast majority of us have come to concentrate in cities over like, you know, that period from the middle of the 20th century. Um, and correspondingly, we've like turned massive hinterlands into nothing other than production systems for cattle. Um it's just like profoundly weird if you think about it as like a space alien, uh, you know, thinking about this planet. It's like, what the hell just happened? <laughs> what are they doing down there? Yeah, the, 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 the rapid reorganization of the biosphere must be pretty fucking weird to watch from a satellite. 
A follow-on point that's made is, is this, I think, quite interesting thing that, like, um, organisms that are capable of expansion and colonizing different environments uh, tend to be generalists, right? They, they're able to survive in all kinds of situations. And then the opposite is specialists. And I don't know, we seem to be switching from generalist to specialist, right? That we're, we're specializing more and more in urban living. And our, our environment is a lot simpler for that. And... It, I don't know, it, it's kind of like we're, we might be losing some capacity to adapt by doing that, becoming over overfit to a niche, you know? Yeah, and well, we, we also have exactly the problem with, like, my apartment and the mobs, right? Is that, like, our cities become so simplified that they can be overrun with, uh, like, one thing because there's there's there, there's such a monoculture. There's such a, a simple... Uh, system uh biologically um and so so complex and rigid that they become very 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 uh vulnerable at the same time that they are extremely powerful in um uh like revolutionizing the entire planet to serve their needs um yeah yeah it's um and i don't know like a, a lot of what he's talking with then is the the way that like concentration in cities obviously has its advantages, right? Like, and it's it, there's a reason it's a feedback loop, right? That like, you know, you, you want to be close to amenities, you want to be close to frankly close to other people for like I don't know, dating opportunities and friendship and shit like that, right? Like you're gonna you're gonna have a better time doing that in a city than you are out in the sticks, and every, everyone knows that. It's why everyone wants to move to the city, um, but that kind of becoming overfit to this peculiar niche has its substantial risks, right? And one of those big risks is climate change, that like and the the, the problem of heat islands in in cities, right? That like we're becoming very specialistly adapted to these very particular environments that are not terribly hospitable actually. No, they're they're incredibly fragile um as uh in in, in any sort of like longer term outlook. Um, uh, because they're so dependent on so many complex systems that are ludicrously energy intensive, and um, uh, and, and uh, the 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 cities are yeah susceptible to the global warming to which they themselves are contributing. So it is like very uh. It's it's very much like a uh, one of those like local uh, optimums, uh, <laughs> where it's like, <laughs> you know, there are there are incentives, there are reasons to do this thing within a local context. But if you look at it in a broader context, it seems completely unfathomable. Like why you would pursue this path of development uh, from the big picture, right? Uh, and this is this is a thing that like beer talks about a lot, right? Um, just sort sort of like lamenting the modern world. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, the author takes kind of more uh, like I mean does a fair bit of lamenting the modern world, but like takes um, a step in a sort of more positive direction by bringing in like he's kind of saying that like the the very rapid transformation has meant that we're not really 
yet understanding what cities even are, and that you can see cities as organisms, as like complex adaptive systems with their own metabolisms and their own react, their own, you know, an organism has a relationship with an environment. And, you know, he brings in like Patrick Geddes, who um, kind of pioneered this way of thinking about things and just like, you know, there's a lot of good stuff here about, um, it's, it's very different from the way an urban planner would see things, right? Like see, instead, Geddes um, advocated for seeing, uh, seeing cities basically as organisms with their own complex internal dynamics um, and their their complex metabolic relation to their environment. Yes, and and sort of the you know the the, the point is that um, there's been people for the longest time trying to make arguments about why um, greening cities would be a good idea. So, like, he points even back to, like, uh, John Evelyn writing in 1661 uh, uh, about, like, the value of greening um, and, and, and uh, uh, identifying, like, why the air quality is so bad in London and how using greening techniques would actually improve the issue. And, and you know, it's just gone on and on that people have pointed these things out and even uh, like actually the book and like this book that Evelyn wrote was like the first thing the Royal Society ever published, um, uh, the, the British Royal Society. Uh, and yeah, just, you know, didn't, didn't really amount to anything. Um, but, uh, I think the other contrast that he, or the other point that he's trying to illustrate is that like, how can we say this? Like, yeah, in... I think this is something that comes up a bit in the next chapter, maybe, but this idea that like mutual aid, like, yeah, he talks about Kropotkin and, and mutual aid in, in this chapter, number two. And it's, um, he makes this point that like, okay, you know, we think about evolution and we think about competition because of Darwinism. Right. And there is a fair amount of validity to that point of view if you look at animals as the primary subject of evolution. Now, it's not to say there isn't cooperation among animals, because there is. But the thing is, if you look at plants, you see that the tendency towards cooperation is overwhelmingly strong versus the one that you see in animals. And then if you think that you know, animals are only 0.3% of the biomass on the planet. And there's an overwhelming tendency towards cooperation among plants. It suggests that our understanding of evolution is really skewed uh, because, um, these plants are actually very successful. <laughs> Arguably, in quantitative measures, they're much more successful than we are. Um, and this focus on cooperation might be something that's actually necessary to keep cities going, given the fact that, uh, you know, they're very resource intensive. They need a lot of stabilization. Um, and also, uh, they need a lot of sort of like, yeah, mutual stabilization 
um, in, in a complex system. And these are things that plants can provide. They're things they've evolved to do. You know, there is sort of a whole other world suggested by this understanding of life. Um, and, and if we had the humility to not put animals like a hundred percent extreme close-up focus in the middle of the frame at all times and view plants as like beneath notice, maybe this other world would be a better world than the one that we are creating. Um, but we, we just, have a massive mental block about it and doesn't matter how many essays or how many uh sorry academic papers are published about plant evolution that validate kropotkin's ideas we'll just keep ignoring them unless we really do a complete flip in our way of thinking yeah absolutely right um a flip to to like Seeing seeing cities as organisms, seeing and filling them with plants, plant organisms. Seeing this kind of taking the lessons from mutual aid, taking lessons from plants, doing all that kind of stuff, and it's like that. Maybe then you know, the cities or our living spaces could be survivable rather than death traps, which is what they're turning into. Yeah, and it's like you know, you look at mutual aid, right? It's like okay, mutual aid is really hard for humans to do, right? Like it's we have plenty of competitive instincts that uh, push in the opposite direction that uh, from mutual aid, even though we have instincts that also push in that direction, right? Like uh, there's, there's, there's a sort of conflictual relationship uh, in human behavior between the two. And it makes mutual aid something that's not easy to do. Like we tend, we tend to generally privilege our close relations over other people. Um, and it takes quite a lot of work to make us do otherwise. But for plants, that's really not true. Right? <laughs> it's like, that's, that's actually easier for them to do. So what if we were able to harness that fact and, uh, you know, uh, create sort of communist society that has a lived environment that, 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 that emphasizes that the characteristic of mutual aid and uh, does not uh, push us to engage in more and more competitive behavior that is uh, self-destructive. Yeah. Um, yeah. Wouldn't that be lovely? <laughs> you know, um, it would be it would be good stuff. I would like that quite a bit. Um, yeah. I mean, the, the authors the, the, the weaves together a fascinating kind of um, set of set of references there. Um, and yeah, I, I would I don't know. For all my reservations about having fucking big bugs around or whatever, um, you know, when I look out the window here, I mean, it's it's reasonably green, but like a lot of this city isn't, you know. Um, and you know, what would it be like to walk around town and just have fucking plants everywhere, you know, and and to and to live like that? It's not just an aesthetic thing. Like, wouldn't it be cool to look at some plants? It would be how what what what's different about life there, you know? Seems like it'd be very different. Yeah, like he. He points out that, like, according to this online database, like Vancouver, BC, and Canada is like the most plant-heavy city in the world. And I've lived there for quite a bit of time. And yeah, like, 
Uh, there is a fair amount of sort of like overgrowing of the city in the suburbs and stuff at very large parks. There's like Stanley Park. There's the UBC endowment grounds, like these large forested areas that kind of probably bias the thing, uh, the measures in that direction. But the downtown is not really any different than any other, uh, any other big city. Um, so I, I feel like, you know, it may be biased in that direction. It may be sort of an outlier, but I don't think it's really the paradigm of greening that we need to find um, as, as an example. Like I feel like here in Utrecht, there's, there's, you know, there's more sort of thatch roofs, there's more green roofs, there's more, um, there's more sort of like living spaces that are complicated and have lots of organisms living in them than, than I felt like uh, existed in Vancouver. So we just have to kind of like look around and cherry pick the examples we can find and see if there's a there's there's some way that we could have like, you know, some living space to ourselves that isn't constantly infested while also having a very green uh, and rich environment to live in that isn't incredibly toxic to us. Mm hmm. Absolutely. Um, the third chapter, Planting the Underground, continues the mutual aid um, theme with uh, basically the sort of problem uh, that um, some uh, botanists kind of found with like they would they would occasionally find like tree stumps like that were you know cut down trees that were still alive even long after they'd been cut down and trying to solve this kind of kind of kind of mystery. Yeah, like decades later, this tree stump is still alive. Like it is still functioning as a living tree despite not having like regrown into a full tree or anything. It's alive decades after being cut down. It doesn't have photosynthesis or anything like that. Um, what's going on here? And I mean, what, what it turns out is that, um, you know, the, the trees in a forest are all connected by their underground root networks. They form a kind of weird superorganism, and they're perfectly happy to share nutrients and to push, like, through hydraulic action, push um, stuff into the into the tree stump. <laughs> Like I don't know, kind of surprising, but then when you when you think about it, it's not 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 terribly surprising at all because it. I mean, it, it, there's an evolutionary advantage to not having a rotting stump that's a source of disease right amongst you because you you can't walk away from it. They can't bury their dead, you know. So keeping them alive actually pays off. Yeah, and also like you can still make use of that root network to bridge the gap between other trees, right? Like it's basically like an infrastructure that you can continue to make use of. Um, and and the, the, the key thing here is that um, trees are capable of grafting. Um, and this is essentially like where you take a piece of a tree and you fuse it to another tree and this forms a new organism that is made up of both, right? And, um, you know, through like very elaborate means, we can do that as humans with like, um, sorry, with, uh, 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 organs and so on, like organ donors, organ transplants, that kind of thing. We can do that, but it's, it's, it's like, it's not like our biology is highly amenable to doing so. Whereas with trees, they're very good at doing this. And, and, you know, 
this this characteristic of grafting, which allows you to sort of get the characteristics of both trees, is something that humans have taken advantage of for a very long time to create like new species of trees for like agricultural purposes and that kind of thing, or just like um, you know for decorative purposes or what have you. Um, but the funny thing is that we think about grafting in those practical terms, in terms of like decorative purposes or purposes of like means of production. But we didn't really think very much about why are trees able to do this, right? Like we just took it for granted that the trees could do this. And the most important thing about it was that we could take advantage of it. But then, you know, through this experiment, they sort of figure out like, oh, actually they do this because like they can function, as you said, as a sort of super organism that is not really um, individual in the same way that animals are. Right. They do they do root grafting constantly. That's like underground. They're all actually glued together. It's fucking bizarre, but like... Yeah, so it's like, it is known that like there are some competitive behaviors among trees, right? Like the uh, parent trees will sort of preferentially send nutrients through the root network to their children, that kind of thing. But like also if grafting, like you have to take into account root grafting in determining like what is an individual because that is not uh, open, like that is not clean or clear in the way it is with animals. Because actually, like as these trees grow together, they become a superorganism, and so that kind of like um, Darwinian preferential uh, resource allocation to your own children becomes more and more muddy and unclear as a result of this. It becomes more of a sort of like fuzzy localized thing as opposed to a, uh, you know, family tree, quote unquote, uh, <laughs> uh, parents to children uh, uh, preference. And of course, like in human society, we see this to some degree too, right? Like we have like socialism where it's quite fuzzy or, you know, we have like uh, clan structures or whatever. Um but I guess it's just to say that, like, there are these affordances about arboreal biology and plant biology that are just, like, beyond what we can conceive of as animals um, in, in an intuitive sense, right? Yeah, it's, it's, there, it's certainly more difficult to conceive of. And when we do conceive of it, it's kind of framed as like an outlier kind of conception like i think it's it's a lot of what um i mean just to touch back on the Deleuze and Gautry thing of like in in that chapter on arborescence and rhizomes like they're kind of getting at like these two modes of thought and that like we, we in some ways we have a very strong bias to this like ocular arborescent kind of mode of thought like where we interpret trees as being individuals and we we see their branching pathways and then we, we see our own like you know state-like lineages and shit like that in there there's there's, there's a particular mode of thought that's very arborescent and then there's a mo there's a mode of thought that's more rhizomatic and more like the root network. And you see the same thing in human societies, right? Like you have, I don't know, like a clan structure or some sort of kin kinship network that if you, if you kind of look at the relations between people is very rhizomatic and very indistinct. Like there's a lot of different interactions going on. But then overlaid on top of it, you have the chieftains and their kind of arborescent branching tree structure of succession and stuff like that. Like in... 
it, 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 there does seem to be a very strong tilt, especially in contemporary society, that like towards the arborescent, towards the kind of optical interpretation of trees. Um, and the, there's, there's something about the state and capital that favors those kinds of metaphors and interpretations. Yes, yes. Uh, the, the, the point, the point uh, he makes is, uh, uh, I would like the absurdity of this proposition to be clear. Discoveries made in the vegetable kingdom are not thought deserving of any attention unless and until they are replicated in the animal kingdom. Conversely, models whose validity is obviously restricted to the animal world are ipso facto thought to be of universal value. So it's like, why? Why would we think that? Right. Like, what is the rational basis for this thought? Right. It's the the major and minor sciences, right? Of 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 Deleuze and Guattari, right? Like there is there's, there's there's things that are taken to be universal. They're the major sciences, and then there's the minor stuff that's just, I don't know, like peripheral nerd shit. Um, and yeah, he gives the example of like, what if there were like a parliament of elected representatives that included all living things? Eighty five percent of plant life would have four hundred and twenty five representatives. Well, the 0.3% of animals would have 1.5. The rest would be assigned to fungi and various microorganisms. So we would have uh, 1.5 that d decide for everyone else, uh, according to the human model, when you have like this 500-person uh, body of which 425 come from plants. Yeah. Um, um Chapter four, planting music, um, I, I, I thought was interesting, but I don't know there's that much to say about. Um, a lot of it's just about the the very special wood that goes into violins um, of the, the Stradivari and so on. Yeah, it, it's essentially about it's about the way in which um, the 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 best trees, these best spruce trees used to make um uh, the best violins in, in all, all of human history, right? These, these, these exemplars created, um, in Italy, uh, were harvested, um, following growth during the little ice age. And it was the sort of, um, moderated climactic extremes, uh, and the, uh, austere environment in which they grew, which allowed their, uh, their, their, I guess you could say their, like their internal, like cell structure to be like highly regular, um, and, 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 uh, and porous in exactly the right way to produce, uh, excellent resonance. Right. And, and so, you know, we can try as humans to synthesize these qualities, but in fact, like, it seems that these very specific qualities are found only in climactic conditions that do not exist anymore um, and are only as a result of sort of an accident of evolution combined with an accident of climate history. More so than the genius of the the, the luthiers, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah, that, that's that's it, right? And it's kind of um, it, it is it is interesting to meditate on the the, the interaction between the, the very particular histories of these organisms um, and the and, and human art and 
you know, these very prized instruments. Um, yeah. And, 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 and it's just like, it's just underscoring, like, you know, no matter how good we get in our instrument crafting and our physical, like our material sciences at this point in time, we still haven't been able to replicate those materials, which are just a result of tree growth. Right. And it, it, it's 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 just like pointing to something that is held as being incredibly valuable in the human world of aesthetics uh, that that like, the, you know, the, the vast majority of its value comes from something completely outside of human ingenuity. And we can't it's like we might be jealous of the trees for creating this thing, but we just can't seem to do it on our own. Right. We're, we're highly de- like in so, in so many ways, we're highly dependent on tree growth, you know, on, on plant growth. And this is just one of yet another example. Um, in Chapter five, Planting Time, we get another very interesting example of their dependency on tree growth. It's um, it's about the history of the the science of like um uh like what is it it's like plant chronology or is it tree chronology i want to get the term right here um uh yeah the term is um uh dendrochronology dendrochronology yeah it's it's a history of dendrochronology which is the um uh, de- you know de- determining the age of a of a tree or like um it's it's pattern of growth by the by analyzing the rings in in the tree, but then like if you have a bunch of these examples, you can actually chain together a, a chronology, um, stretching back as far as you want, and you can uh, determine like when you know like for a given specimen you know of wood, you can say well this lines up with this part of the chronology that we know of, so it's it's dated to to this time. Um, this initially gets its start from. Like a theory that the uh, solar cycles would show up in the the widths of the rings, um, and that t- turns out to be kind of a dead end. But it gives birth to this dendrochronology thing, um, which uh, there's a lot there's a lot here that is is very interesting. But like in the end, what it ends up doing is contributing then to the precision of carbon fourteen dating, um, because like. Uh, in a very, in a very co- kind of complex interaction of like trying to trying to date various things, it kind of turns out that the method of doing carbon fourteen dating needed to be calibrated based on the chronologies that have been discovered from the tree rings, because the tree rings would indicate how how the the climate had changed over time, and that affects the rate of which carbon fourteen is up is taken into the um, taken into the organic matter and so on. But like. It, to me, a lot of this like was very interesting because it kind of highlighted like, you know, in one way the the erased uh, role of plants in this process, or like the 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 study of plants in this process of getting to reliable carbon fourteen dating. Um, well, yeah, and like the the protagonists who are engaged in 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 sort of uh, doing this scientific research are sort of considered to be like cranks who are uh, um, investigating uh, like a sort of disproven theory or a highly improbable theory, right? Um, uh, We have like uh, uh, Shulman uh, is one of these uh, researchers. And then we have, uh, uh, um, sorry, uh, his student, um, uh, Libby, I believe. Yeah. 
Um, and and uh, the these oh no, sorry, he wasn't a student. Yeah. So anyway, the the, the main dendrochronologist that's being studied is um, is uh, uh, Shulman. Um, and, and he's just basically going around in the mountains in like the Southwest U S like looking at archeological sites for wood and, and then like going up into the mountains and finding trees and boring, like doing these little bore samples, these, these little core samples that you can use to look at the rings without killing the tree. Um, and just 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 trying to find the right specimens that will provide a sort of comprehensive chronological record that he can use to prove this theory that there's a there on on a long enough timeline there is a correlation a strong correlation between uh, the tree rings and the solar cycles, right? And and it's very like just this lonely scientific endeavor, very like Don Quixote, like just sort of tilting at windmills sort of thing, right? Uh, but it turns out that the result of this is that that uh, Libby, who is the scientist who um, uh, discovered carbon dating, um, has something to to verify his hypothesis about the decay of carbon-14 and its relationship to time against. Um, and, and that just never would have happened if it weren't for, uh, you know, this, this, this crank scientist doing, like, backyard or, like, backwoods uh, empirical research uh, roaming the hills by, by, by himself, uh, completely uh, ignored by the rest of the scientific world. Yeah, and like for a long time, it seemed like Shulman's project would maybe not work out because it just couldn't couldn't get the specimens to make a long enough timeline, um, make a long enough chronology because they all they all have to overlap eventually, and to like stretch it back and back into the past, and like it. There's something about that that's very precarious. It's like, I don't know, like, off the top of your head, you might think, like, oh, you know, dating things, whatever. That, that seems like it should be fairly straightforward. But then, like, this is a real problem for a good long while. I was like, we just, we just don't know. Like, the, the information you want is just not available to you, except un unless you're, like, Shulman, and you go out looking for it and spend a long time doing that. And then, even when you get to, like, carbon-14 dating, that had to be, like, calibrated against the findings from the dendrochronology to make it actually accurate and that that shifted that shifted the estimates quite a bit actually and for some there's there's like a curve that they had to had to, had to compensate for um yeah because of all these like atmospheric and environmental factors that adjust things and yeah and it's it just seems like the practice of these kind of the science is on shakier footing than you'd think yes yeah uh and and like you know Carbon dating is something you learn about in elementary school these days, right? As a sort of like a foundation of archaeology, a foundation of geology, a foundation of like our understanding of time as it is now. But it wouldn't have been possible without Shulman doing this uh, crank research and then like finding out by luck these trees that are like 4,900 years old. 
without those trees, you just don't. But that's the, that's the interesting thing with it. With that, those those trees are the only things that give you any indication of that stuff, right? Like they're the they're the only, only organism that records. They're the they're only object in the world that records that kind of history. Um, without those, you, you were just flying blind. Like there's a uh, sort of similar to the uh, the spruce used in the. Um the violins, uh, they, they could only live so long because they grew in very specific, uh, climactic conditions, very, like a very specific biome that, uh, starve them of, 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 of nutrients, much like a bonsai tree. Right. And by being starved perpetually, they had their life extended beyond the range that, um, any other tree could have. Um, and then, you know, you sort of have this interlude where this, this idiot Donald Curry comes along and because he's too bad at, at taking core samples by hand, he gets some yahoos from the, the forest service to come and just cut down the oldest living being in existence. A fucking travesty. It's like 4,900 years old, and then some idiot shows up with a saw uh, and, and cuts it down because he doesn't know what he's doing. And all because he's a blundering fucking doofus who, like, trips over the core drill or whatever the fuck. Yeah, like, he, he can't he, he can't do the drill, like, the, 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 the technique that Shulman was doing well enough and so he's like well screw this let's just cut the tree down and have a look inside um it's like oh and then and then they like try to like cover it up because they realize like they've done a big boo-boo <laughs> oh that's fucking crazy um yeah like a, a fascinating chapter um and like, yeah, everything's fucking dependent on trees in, in one way or the other. Um, yeah, and, 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 you know, we, we use carbon dating all the time. We know about the method, et cetera, et cetera. But now that it's been calibrated, we don't need to think about the trees anymore at all. Like, dendrochronology, who cares? Like, we don't need that anymore. That shit gets forgotten about. Um, yeah. I mean, I think, I think it's still used in climate science quite a bit. But, um, you know, as far as the, the basis for carbon dating, that story is completely forgotten. Yeah. 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 Um, chapter six, planting knowledge, I, I found to be a bit weird. It kind of like it's, it's all about banana skins and bananas and <laughs> all the weird and wacky little anecdotes that this guy can think up about them. Um, yeah. It's very strange because it's like, you know, it, 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 the, the sort of framing device is his relationship with this um, this scientist from Kitakyushu um, um, uh, named uh, Tomonori, uh, who he calls Tom. Um, and uh, he's, he's like, I don't really understand anything about Japanese culture, but let me tell you about Japanese people. <laughs> Oh, I love this shit. And it's like, it's like, it's like Japanese people just could never ask you to go out for a drink and not feel awkward about it. It's like, I think it's because you're a senior scientist. I think yeah. that's why. I don't think it's because of Japanese you. people. <laughs> Japanese people ask each other to go out for drinks after work all the time. It's like, what the hell are you talking about? But anyway, I mean, it's not it's not like an essay about the Japanese. It's just like his sort of bubbling observations about Japanese-ness at the beginning. 
Um, and, and yeah, uh, I, 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 I was almost there at the same time that he was in Kita Kyushu because, um, one of my exes went to university there. Um, but yeah, anyway, uh, the, the point, the point here is that like, you know, he goes out drinking with his colleague and, um, there's this idea that, you know, in many cultures, uh, it is a sort of an idiom uh, to, you know, sort of treat the, the the banana peel as the slipperiest thing that you slip on in sort of comedic circumstances. But there's no like slipping on a banana skin expression in Japanese, according to him. Uh, like, it's not to say I've heard such an expression, but then it's not exactly that common either, right? It's just, I think, like, I just think about, like, where do I always, like, what do I always think about? Or what most people think about these days when they think about slipping on a banana skin. They think about Mario Kart, which is a Japanese thing. So I'm like, how true is this really? But whatever. The, the main point here is that, uh, you know, Tom demands like some scientific evidence that the banana skin is especially slippery. And um, uh, uh, Stefano cannot provide this evidence. So he provides all kinds of sort of like surrounding information. But Tom's like, unless you give me that like coefficient of friction, I don't care what you got to say. Like, how lubricating are banana skins? That's all I want to know. It's like, if you don't give me that, I'm just going to say, and so, and so, and so. Um, and we get, like, this basic, like, history of bananas that comes as, as a result of this. Um, and I think the main point here, uh, you might have a different idea, but I think the main point here is about, is about, uh, New York, uh, New York City, and banana skins, right? So bananas used to be super expensive. They were from the tropics. You know, you couldn't reliably transport them to New York. Uh, only rich people could eat them. Then we had refrigerated uh, steamers that um, would bring bananas north, and then everybody could eat bananas. And everybody's doing great, except for the people who grew the bananas, who were horribly oppressed, and still the case today. Um, uh, but the important thing here, uh, aside from the you know way that like the benefits of bananas are very lopsidedly distributed, um, is that once everybody in New York started eating bananas, they threw banana peels everywhere. And this was causing a ton of injuries and accidents because banana peels are slippery and because they had no garbage collection in New York. It was just this pile of garbage everywhere. Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> oh, my God. And the solution that the New Yorkers came up with was to bring pigs into the city and the pigs would eat the banana peels and that would solve the garbage problem. Um, so you just had these pigs like wandering the streets, like at any given time uh, of day, doing their pig things. And they were just like sort of like, I don't know, like citizens of New York in a way. Right. Um, and um, the benefit for the New Yorkers, aside from having their garbage collected, 
was that they could just eat the pigs when they were big enough, right? <laughs> so it's like, sweet, this is great. But then some prudes got really upset because the pigs were getting down in the street. And they were like, oh, no, the lady folk might start getting ideas. <laughs> you know what those broads are like, you know? <laughs> if they see these pigs yeah. fucking in the yeah. street. Yeah. Oh dear! It's it's we we must pr- protect their feminine virtue and their their fragile minds from this lascivious pig behavior, and so they ban all the pigs. Mm-hmm. And then they finally get real garbage collection. Yeah, they they bring in the cops basically, and then the the garbage collectors. And 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 you know the point of it is that as a result of banana accidents being so common in New York. The banana as a thing you slip on gets into vaudeville theater and then becomes like a worldwide sort of famous gag. Um, And it's this relationship between the banana tree, the well, which isn't actually a tree, uh, apparently Uh, it's a bush. (laughs) And and, and the bananas are like bananas are actually berries, technically speaking, which is super weird. But uh, yeah, this, uh, you know, this tree uh, becomes sort of a a core element of popular culture. And it also sort of points at this like, you know, we had a moment where we sort of had like a functioning complex biological system to deal with this problem that involves sort of like tree matter and animals and humans and then we decided to get rid of all of it and replace it with like uh, basically an army of people to to make sure that the the city nature divide is maintained. And you know, landfill. It all gets moved to fucking landfill instead. It all gets moved to a landfill, and and the pigs don't get fed. So, and then we then we had to take seventy percent of agricultural land on Earth and use it to feed uh, cows instead. <sighs> yeah. Um. I don't know. It, it then it then kind of semi wraps up with like they there is a study that gets the slipperiness coefficient of bananas or something, and they have a good laugh about it. Um, and then there's a weird bit at the end about like the brief thing in the sixties where everyone was trying to smoke banana skins to get high, and I don't know. This is a weird chapter. <laughs> yeah, I, I think it was like basically like this is funny. Is the only reason that's in there is like. This this craze in the 60, uh, 60s of smoking banana skins, um, which is just like coincidentally spawned by this song Mellow Yellow coming out at just the right time. Um, and everyone being convinced that bananas are, are psychoactive and this somehow being related to the fact that in some cultures that bananas are considered like the fruit, the tree of knowledge. Uh and, and, and it's it's all just very like loosey goosey, like story 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 time fun time, yeah. Oh, oh well, um, it's an amusing chapter. Um, uh, chapter seven, planting law and order, is uh, ultimately about the process by which, um, like using plant matter as evidence in court uh, is finally taken up as like a real thing, um. Briefly, and and but still, still isn't really a big thing in, in these days, which you which you kind of find a bit surprising. Um, it it all kind of centers on like the um, uh, the kidnapping of the Lindbergh baby, um, 
which in was it the 20s or was it the 30s so Charles Lindbergh I think in the in 27 he did the big transatlantic flight from New York to Paris non-stop solo um which you know got him a lot of fame and fortune and good stuff um but then a couple of years later I think during the 30s um his infant son was abducted from the family home um and ultimately found dead and yeah it's uh, 32 1932 32 um and the investigation and the conviction hinged on like so there was like a ladder that was found kind of next to the window you know that was just discarded but it was a homemade ladder um and through the analysis of the wood in the ladder uh they got their guy basically um well, I mean, that was part of it. They, they, they used, like, tracing bills, uh, tracing dollar bills from the ransom to track down the probable location. And then when they found the guy, you know, his, his whole home had, like, you know, pl- planks missing and shit like that, 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 you know, matched, you know, the, the, the planks there matched the planks that were used to make the ladder. Um, there was wood in the workshop that matched the wood in the ladder, all that kind of stuff. But, like, submitting this as evidence was taken to be really strange at the time and the uh defense the defense really did their best to just just you know get, get the shit out of here it's crazy you're, you're telling me that wood is a thing you can fucking have in evidence in a courtroom that's 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 it's crazy talk you know um <laughs> yeah it's like uh the 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 lawyer for the defendant um uh for the kidnapper uh uh, speaks to the court uh, about this, like whether this should be admissible evidence or not, and 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 says something like, or says uh, there does not exist among men an animal known as an expert on wood, which is not a science recognized by the courts, which has nothing to do with handwriting experts, fingerprint experts, or ballistics experts. Those are some of the sciences recognized by the courts. It's just like, like, who do you think you are coming here <laughs> as a botanist and trying to tell us what's what? This is absurd. You think you're a real scientist? It's, it's, it's like, you know, the whole chapter begins with him sort of like lamenting how like being an agronomist, which is like, you know, the neighboring discipline to botany, um, is like disreputable among academics and everyone feels bad for him for uh, uh, being a plant researcher of any kind because it's such a pathetic excuse for a science. Um, and then, you know, just like, well, look at this, you know, back in history, like people in court said this wasn't a real science. <laughs> but the, fortunately, the judge in this one case did say that, in fact, the, the testimony was expert. Um, so disagreed with the lawyer. <laughs> but the, the as, in, in the subsequent years, the more surprising thing is that um, any kind of plant sciences is basically not included in forensics. Um, Like, if you look at sort of like uh, centers of criminal, uh, criminal investigation and forensic expertise, you're not going to find botanists of any kind. Um... Uh, despite the fact that plants are like literally everywhere and could be quite uh, indicative of like place. Uh, yeah. 
So there, there has been some really great success with using like pollen as as a way of placing a murder or placing a location or whatever. Um, like there's been some pretty like there, there's quoted here some really impressive cases where, um, you know, it's, botany has has contributed massively to um to 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 solving it. But like then the the handbook of forensic services of the FBI mentions wood fibers once, but makes no reference to any other vegetable matter. Um, and a lot of labs just don't have botany expertise on hand. They just don't process pollen, or they do barely process anything to do with wood. So the attitude that botany is not a science is largely still alive and well. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, um, yeah, my, my dad had to quit botany because, uh, there's no work in it because nobody takes it seriously. <laughs> That's why he ended up becoming an ecologist. <laughs> yeah. That's nuts. Um, and then the last chapter, um, planting the moon, I think we've already basically talked about that. Um, there, you know, tree seeds have been to the moon and back and got planted and nobody gives a shit, <laughs> which is fucking weird. You know, when you think about it. Um, yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's like, um, they had this idea of doing sort of like um, uh, sibling experiments uh, between the the trees that had been to or the the seeds that had been to the moon and the ones that they preserved on Earth that were like their siblings and to see like well a b testing what changes right um, but they never even did the experiment they were just like I don't know we're just gonna plant these moon trees because everybody's <laughs> all about the moon right now and then we'll just forget about them whatever yeah. who cares it's very much like the uh, the Carter solar panel on the White House mm. uh, that got taken <laughs> yeah. down in the Reagan era but like uh, even less famous than that um. <laughs> Absolutely. it's fucking strange right like and um, it just it underscores the, the point uh, the large point of the book that like it's really weird that we ignore these beings, um, despite how important they are. Yeah, it's like, um, you know, that that uh, the dog that was sent to space, Laika, like, was, like, on a stamp for, like, the Soviet Union, right? Like, really famously, or, like, everybody knows that story, right, about about Laika, the, the, the dog that was the first living being in space. But the fact that, like... These were the first seeds in space, which are also living beings, and we have a bunch of trees from them everywhere, just not remembered at all, except for on that plaque. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I don't know. Very strange. Um, this is a fun little book, and is there is there much else to say about it? I, I feel like it's um, it's it's very fun to read, but um, yeah, I think we've covered pretty much everything. Um. Yeah, I liked it. I liked it a lot. I, I would love to get more of the plant intelligence stuff. Um, yes. If we could. Yeah, no, I, I think this is, this is making a valid point that is um, sort of adjacent to the point about plant intelligence, right? It is, it's, it's not primarily concerned with plant intelligence. It's concerned with, like, how prolific plants are how adaptive they are and how much we ignore them. Um, it's like, that's all cool. Uh, it's good to know. I mean, I guess if you're a, if you are a, uh, researcher on plants and the only reason that people start getting interested in plants is because they have intelligence, which is a quality similar to the quality we have as animals. 
I guess you could understand. Like, I could understand being like, well, oh, now you're interested in plants. Is that it? Because they're more like animals? Because they're more like your animal fixation? Is that why you're interested in the plants, huh? You you animal obsessive? Um, yeah, I, I, I kind of get that vibe from this book. And the point is actually a valid point. So um, uh, it's well taken, but uh, I think we all want to know more about animal, or sorry, the plant uh, intelligence and all of the cool stories like like trees screaming in... in uh, ultrasonic frequencies that we can't hear probably because we probably because we evolved to shut them out <laughs> if if i were a species i think i would do that you know yeah yeah i mean i feel like you know this natural selection like the people who are uh constantly hearing screaming trees probably less good at uh tuning into the sounds that are more relevant to their life um, <laughs> yeah absolutely right um <laughs> yeah <laughs> in the very like practical survival sense <laughs> yeah um i think as well like uh i think it would it would be for us on the left, it would probably do as well to kind of revisit Kropotkin's mutual aid and specifically in the context of plants and kind of draw more lessons from there if we could. Because um, we, we have evidence of, you know, beings that are very highly adapted at doing this kind of cooperation stuff and succeeding very well at it. Um, it's kind of weird we don't, you know, it's weird we don't pay more, more attention. The thing is, like, we... So it's like leftists will often bring up Kropotkin, right? Like be like, look, you know, mutual aid, cooperation. These are things that are also very important to evolution and maybe even more so. And it's like, yeah, okay. But like if you take, if you take um, animal evolution as the universally valid type of evolution, then at best, it's kind of like a yeah, but what about sort of argument, right? Like it is is sort of like, like at best, you can kind of say like, you know, maybe these things are roughly equal. Maybe the cooperation is a bit stronger, but like you can't really look at the history of humanity and say like, haha, mutual aid is the, the, the essence of human nature. Like it would just be absurd, right? Um, because of all the, war violence and all the things that are horrible in history. Um, uh, but if it is in fact true as this, um, as this book argues that, you know, there's overwhelming evidence of mutual aid in plant evolution. Well, you can sort of shift the discussion a little bit by decentering the animals and sort of saying, well, if you look in this broader context, yes, we have these, sort of competing imperatives, but the the plants are much more to this mutual aid side than we as humans or as animals are. Um, because, it, you know, all you got to do is like go out in a park and look at birds and you'll see evidence of competitive behavior or rivalrous behavior between birds. Like, it's not like this is like an abhorrent like crime against nature that doesn't exist outside of like the fallen human spirit or something like that. It's like, no, there's animals competing all the time, all around us. You can see it everywhere. And it would be silly for us to try to like 
do some sort of like Stalinist like denial of the existence of these things, right? But it is interesting to recenter the whole discussion, or uh, sorry, uh, displace the whole discussion and and reconceive it uh, by taking into account you know the prevalence of plants and their very different natures. And, and have a different conception of life that could maybe lead us to a different view of the world. Yeah, and I mean, especially now that, like, climate change means we're kind of going to have to decenter ourselves anyway. Like, if, if our project is about the preservation of life on Earth, like, life on Earth is mostly not us. Um, and so we're going to have to swallow our egos in that kind of sense as well. And, um, you know, pay a bit more attention to how life in general works, which is, turns out we're a pretty strange exception and not the actual model, and we shouldn't be, you know, we, sh we should be paying much more attention to how living beings in general actually function, and what they need to live. Yeah, it would be the rational thing to do. listening to General Insect Unit. While you wait for the next episode, you can find us on Twitter at GIUnitPod. You can find us on Facebook and on the podcast apps, so like, rate, and subscribe. If you'd like to support the show and get access to our community Discord, you can go to patreon.com slash generalintellectunit and give us a couple of bucks a month. Every contribution is greatly appreciated. This show is part of the Emancipation Network, a Marxist podcast network and research collective. Go to emancipation.network and check out our sister shows such as Swampside Chats, From Alpha to Omega, Mortal Science, and Chimsuit Utopia. They're all excellent shows and excellent folks. Once again, thanks for listening. We really appreciate everyone who came along with us for these first hundred episodes, and we hope you'll stay with us for the next hundred. 